My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I got to tell you, folks, I am having such a great time doing this podcasting thing and getting to know some new podcasters and following some new stuff. And in my circles, you know, as I'm on social media and everything, I get notifications for, hey, you might like this. So one podcast that I found that I am really digging right now is, uh, ooh, pardon the language, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. And guess who I have on the show today? Don Brody. Hello, Don. I love that you like walked into the word, like I'm about to say the word. There's the word, the word. I did it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. And I am just loving your show. I am loving your show so much. I mean, the as of today's uh, recording, the most recent episode you did was on Freaks. So yeah. like sideshow people and people who had, uh, you know, genetic deformities that they turned into a prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was just amazing. But I mean, like, God, your deep dives are so cool, Don. They're so oh. cool. Oh, thanks. It. It's so really, how- the podcast is an excuse for me to read <laughs> even more. <laughs> and like, I don't know about you, but like, I read something interesting and I'm like a kid with a stick in the park, just like looking for something to hit. You know, I'm like, I have this interesting thing I know now and I need to tell somebody I know it. <laughs> and also, and also I smoke a lot of dope, so I'm not going to know it for long. So I have to like, I, I have to commit this. this. I have right. to commit this now. I, yeah, exactly. And so this podcast has been a great vehicle for me to be like, you know what else I learned? <laughs> <laughs> Well, like me, uh, you have a, a, a an education in theater, and I remember, you know, going through my theater history courses through college, and like the the smallest things that could be so interesting were just like skimmed over, mm. you know. Like I'm thinking, like for example, in my episode number twelve on phallus. <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. you know, it's like, uh, oh, and, you know, we would celebrate Dionysus with theater and wine. Oh, and they drag a, a, a large effigy of a penis through the town. Now, as we go forward, you're yeah. like, Whoa. Two, hold on. <laughs> like, you're like hair wishes that. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Same but, thing with like popes and the devil. Like when, when the, when oh, the geez. place were like, you know, what we're going to do is cast the devil and everything. Cause he's really interesting. And I was just like <laughs> watching the way that the, the personification of the devil got to, got to really flex on the stages of the uh, world. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, I'm uh, spoiler alert. I'm doing research on uh, an episode coming up on uh, the musical, the book of Mormon. And I just love how they portray hell in that show in that it's so mm. uh, gentle. <laughs> yeah, kind of corporate. I mean, it's yeah. it's very, the devils have, you know, a party store Halloween devil horns and pitchforks. And <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. just kind of poking you a little bit. Ooh, that's uncomfortable. That's hellish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just <anyway. laughs> So, Don, you also have a career as a stand-up, right? A stand-up comic. Yes. 
that is particularly interesting for the topic we're going to be discussing today, because, um, you know, I, I don't usually let my guests know what we're going to be talking about, but I did give you something to kind of chew on a little bit. So I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into this. Okay. Uh, because I, oh man, I mm. have a feeling in our pre-show little chat, we were like, you know, what we don't do enough of is debate, like actual rhetoric, like sit down over a topic and go, hey, let's actually talk about both sides of the issue instead of I know where I stand and you're wrong, you know? Right. So my question to you is this, what is your opinion on censorship, mm. <laughs> especially when it comes to comedy? Mm, mm. Well, ain't it just a big fat question? I mean, ain't it though? Ain't and, it though? And, and I don't know if you had been stewing on this question before Will Smith. Oh my God. Chris Rock or not. But uh, I mean, this has been because, because the, the debate, especially since the slap has been who crossed the line and then yeah. how do you, what do you do if that, if a line is crossed? So yeah, what's, what's I think, the and I think that response, censorship, right. right. If you're, if you're trying to be generous to those who are advocating for censorship, I think that they generally are trying to avoid what happened at the Oscars, right? They yeah. don't want anyone to cross a line, they, which means Chris Rock, if he crossed the line with the joke and they don't want Chris Rock, if somebody crossed the line to feel like I have to physically violate somebody or, or advocate in some sort of, you know, uh, violent or aggressive way on my own behalf, because nothing was ever mm -hmm. said that offended me. Right. Right. Um, and uh, so it's stirring up all of these things. So it, when you say censorship, I mean, I am almost always, I can't think of an exception. So <laughs> perhaps it exists, but I am, I am almost always against censorship that comes from outside of the artist. Okay. Right. So, okay. so generally speaking, that being said, for purely creative reasons, whereas if the hand that feeds you, for example, I've done a lot of corporate entertainment. So there is sort of the nod that is this sort of umbrella of censorship that is general decency that they didn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to say, please don't say fuck at the sales meeting this year, Don. <laughs> um, you know, I can't say I was necessarily censored. You know what I mean? And certainly I didn't yeah. present a script to the annual sales meeting that was like this fucking guy, right? And then had him like <laughs> black it out. Let me tell you about when my husband went down on me last time. Exactly, everybody buckle up. Yeah, um, <laughs> But so, so you sort of like, I think that there are like layers and, and, and umbrellas of decency that probably qualify as censorship, but mm -hmm. are, but are just sort of agreed upon. But when it comes down to like, I wrote a, you know, my publishing house has taken out a chapter of my book because it said something critical about the government. Ah, this okay. kind of censorship to me is unequivocal. I, I would, I would do all the things, march. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would, yeah. I would, uh, you know, donate money to the opponent. I don't know all the things that you do when that, because that crosses <laughs> the line of where I think censorship is, is awful. At the same right. time, there's probably technically the word censorship qualifies to a little bit of what I do as a standup mm -hmm. for the funny. If I'm going to self-censor myself, it is always for the the benefit of the joke, the funny. I want this thing to be as funny as possible. Okay. okay. And, um, but, it, but it works for or against you. Like I may not, for example, if I find myself in an audience full of middle-aged white haired people having, you know, their afternoon tea, I may self-censor <laughs> myself a little bit. If you right. can call it that by just selecting jokes and comedy that I think is not going to offend them. At the same time, mm -hmm. I kind of know exactly which cattle prod to pick with yeah. this group if I really want to, mm -hmm. you know, they're like Obama <laughs> was great, right? Ah, what, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you kind of yeah, know. My uh, pearls. So, yeah. So I guess, faster. Aaron, I guess my answer is in general, if you're going to like draw a line and ask me which side of the line I'm on pro or, or, you know, against censorship, I'm always mm -hmm. going to jump over to the no censorship side. That well, being yeah. said, I, you know, with understanding that it depends on who is censoring whom and for what reason. Okay. And I think I kind of need to know that before I can uh, color it in shades. Ooh, interesting. Mm. I also have a three and a half year old daughter. And so every once in a while, I, I, I do appreciate the like, hey, for the general airwaves, for the billboards, for the things that are just going to impact, like, can you do me a favor and spare me the question that is, was a monster crawling out of that guy's eyes, mom? You know, and be like, oh. yeah, yeah, that was a guy, okay. you know, was, was he, was he holding her head in a bucket? Uh, you know, 
<laughs> but again, but even then, I, I don't think I'd be like, take these goddamn billboards down. They're scaring my daughter. But I understand right. it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking back to your two episodes chronicling the history of swearing. Mm. It's perfect that we're in a format where people are choosing our content. Mm-hmm. You know, they are coming to us and they're right. going, I want to listen to you because of what you have to say. It's not as though, you know, God, when you and I were growing up where it was like, we have three channels. If you don't right. like what's on any of them, you don't watch TV tonight. Right. 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 So, and we and we were too far to walk to a blockbuster. So, yes, exactly. Exactly. So I have a few quotes uh, to kind of kickstart this thing, throw the snowball down the hill, as it were. OK, first ready. First one. First one's a little long. I want to see what your uh, what your uh, take is on this. And this is by an essayist from the gosh, 1870s, I want to say George mm. Meredith. Mm. Comedy's common aspect is one of unsolicitous observation. Men's future upon earth does not attract it. Their honest and shapeliness in the present does. And whenever they were out of proportion, overblown, affected, pretentious, bombastic, hypocritical, pedantic, fantastically delicate, whenever it sees them self-deceived or hoodwinked, given run to idolatries, drifting into vanities, congregating in absurdities, planning short-sightedly, plotting dementedly, Whenever they are at variance with their professions and violate the unwritten but perceptible laws binding them in consideration to one another, whenever they offend sound reason, fair justice, are false in humility or mind with conceit, individually or in the bulk, the spirit overhead will look humanely malign and cast an oblique light on them, followed by volleys of silvery laughter. (laughs) oh man i mean this is that time when you know a title of a book wasn't just my thoughts on comedy it was comedy and the you know 18 words later and and that's the hook (laughs) right every you get a bonus for every semicolon but to summarize you just go people fuck up Mm -hmm. and it's funny to watch yes that amen (laughs) amen (laughs) right and you know and it is so universal. I think that there are very few things more universal than the things that make us laugh. Oh my God. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, we like, everybody loves titties. Like there may be some, you know, there are some pornographic, there are some solicitous images that we can sort of agree, but what is beautiful? Yeah. What be, it even changes within one culture over the course of time. Um, What is evil? Even what, even what is good can be, Mm -hmm. you know, what, but what is funny will change to an extent because what is current changes. I'm reading a book right now about the history of prohibition and there are some real knee slappers um, in the vaudeville, (laughs) in the vaudeville circuit about individuals that of course you and I, and even our oldest history teachers never knew because they're the the attorney general under somebody who's enforcing some prohibition law in some particular state. And nobody, you know, nobody, but when you lampoon them, they're a zinger, their name is a one liner. Do you know what I mean? And so you always have to think about, there are always those things that don't translate because it's not funny. Even in a high school, it's the, the vice principal and you have the whole, you have 200 people in the auditorium are literally gasping for breath and dying so hard because it was the best impression right. they've ever seen of the vice principal. That joke is not going to work in any other high school or in any other, even the next year it wouldn't work. Do you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. you know yeah. that there are sometimes there's comedy that is real, real specific and isn't going to be funny anywhere else. But um, farts, Oh my god. Girl, girl, I was on <laughs> I was on a train in Thailand. And in Thailand, I was there for my honeymoon and we were there for a long time and I've never felt as foreign to a place as I looked. Do you know what I mean? Anyone, <laughs> okay, anyone gotcha. looked at me yep. and was like, she doesn't know what she's doing. And she does she probably doesn't understand the language. They were right. I couldn't read a word of it. I didn't and, right. And and where were you, Taiwan? You said I was in Thailand and Thailand. Okay, uh, and we sorry. did the whole we were there for a month. So we really traveled the a lot of the country. Um, and they're an incredibly uh, generous and accommodating and and hospitable uh, uh people. It was a wonderful time. One of the days I was walking through, you know, the long neck women the with the rings. That oh yeah okay their necks okay. that you saw okay so there's a village 
and we we had the honor of meeting some of them and walking through the village and oh, I was cool. traveling with a bunch of young Germans and there was this one sort of stereotypical like a Hans like very pudgy very white very sunburned all the time and he <laughs> tripped he tripped and fell in the mud uh, and me and this one of the long neck gals she's sitting in her hut and I'm like what we caught each other's eyes and we laughed so hard together I th- <laughs> I had to sit down we we were we and we were pointing at him and then we point at each other and we put our hands and we laughed and similar I had a similar uh, experience with a man on a train he and I laughed like that because the passenger in between us holding onto the thing just ripped mm-hmm. a huge fart <laughs> and we and me and this old man we're both kind of caught each other and found ourselves <laughs> laughing and kind of woo, you know, stinky. And I mean, you know, there's no way, like, he, I don't think either one of us could have handed each other a plate of food and recognized each other's food. I don't, I didn't even know how to say hello in his language. We are also generationally different, but man, somebody farting. Oh man. Fuck, yep. That's yep. just funny, man. So here, here we go. Here's uh, that leads into my next quote here. This is from uh, Michael Shirtliff. I don't know if you've read his book, Audition. Uh, he was a mm. casting director on Broadway for years, discovered people like Dustin Hoffman and mm. uh, Barbara Streisand and stuff. Mm. So he wrote this book and I, I, I live by it. It's an acting Bible to me. But um, one of his lines is, humor is not jokes. It is the attitude toward being alive without which you would long ago have jumped off the 59th Street Bridge. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. Your story about a guy farting on a train reminded me of a TikTok I saw this morning. Uh, <laughs> a, a friend of mine who um, one of her hobbies is long distance running. She just got done doing a half half marathon, and she posted something um, of this guy running down the road. He's got his headphones on and he's jogging, just just in daily training. And the caption says something like, what I think I look like when I'm running. And you hear this awesome Dr. Dre music and he's just like killing it and everything. And then the caption changes to what's really going on. Then it goes to the sound that's outside him. And you just hear him breathing heavily. (laughs) (laughs) And then he rips a huge fart in the middle of his run. (laughs) Yeah, You're like, yeah, that's some pain. And that's happening to that guy. And he, that poor guy, he probably had no idea that he ripped a huge fart right then just because he's in the moment. He's, he's like, yeah, drop the beat. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I always wonder, like, there's these really high end uh, uh, fitness facilities here. I think they're everywhere, but in L.A., they're called mm-hmm. Equinox and they're very expensive mm. and they're like pretty much exclusively, uh, you know, gorgeous, perfect people. And I'm always yep. like, I the, among the reasons that I'm not drawn to work out in places like that is like, girl, you got to two things. What happens if you have to fart? I feel like you can't fart in <laughs> like. I don't know. I feel like you just can't fart in Equinox or they're all so beautiful and privileged and self-absorbed that everyone's farting and you're paying all this money to just walk into like a fart cloud of beauty. Like, yep. Mm-mm. Yep. Yep. See those people. I, I, I also, uh, this is going to be crude of me. Sorry, mom. Uh, I, when I see somebody like that and you're like, God, they're fucking flawless. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, that took years to get to that. And they've enhanced it with, you know, cosmetics or, you know, hair treatments or whatever. I like to picture them like having a really nasty day on the pot. Just like just shitting their guts uh, out. Just shitting their guts out. Because you know Mm. what? Everybody does that. Everybody does that. Everybody wakes up and and like, you know, they look like hell. Mm -hmm. And and you go, you know what? This is just you on your glow up moment for the day. And bless you. And thank you for giving my eyes this feast. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was talking with a friend once. I went out to, I went to college in LA. I was, I went to Pepperdine and, uh, uh, I think I described it once to him as like, I was surrounded by dime a dozen hot girls. Mm. You know what I mean? (laughs) They are diamond. You know, when I first came out here, my agent, I was like, you know, I was a little nervous because I'm not a babe. Like I'm cute. Like I don't, I love myself. God bless me. You're totally hot, Dawn. But I know, but I know what I'm not. You know what I mean? And it's not, yeah, it's not that you know what it is. It's just the LA, but it's more like, yeah, I love myself, girl. But if you're trying to market me, you're not gonna market me as a tall leggy 
beautiful. Right. Like we have those. Those are those yeah. are those girls, and I'm not one of those girls, and that's completely great. And my agent was like, "No, thank God," because honestly, we're lousy with those girls. Like, yeah, we if got plenty. You are six two and flawless. It's actually kind of crowded out here for you. Like, <laughs> I, you know, truly, like I, I go, like I'm from Wisconsin, girl. You will be mayor. Go to Wisconsin Rapids and just walk through town, <laughs> and they will be like, "What do you want? We will give it to you." <laughs> You know what I mean? Here, people are like, I don't know. Move over, Brittany. Your eyelids are too heavy. (laughs) All right. Here's another couple quotes. And then we get into the the real juice here. Okay. Here's from Mel Brooks in his 2,000-year-old man sketch. Mm. Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. Oh my God. Oh, I love Mel Brooks. It's pain when it's happening to me. Yes. It's hilarious when it's happening to you. Oh God. Yes. Yes. Right? Well, and what is it? And I don't know if this is the antithesis of that, but Mark Twain once said, um, whenever a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I think absolutely is kind of, <laughs> kind of like that equal sentiment, which is I, 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 when you fail, I just love it. Yep. I love yep. it. Like, yeah. and, and when I had zero to do with it. Yes. That's Unless hilarious. it's a dog. <laughs> an animal. I mean, I, I mean, at least if my, like, if my social media consumption is anything, it was like, I will watch people get hurt and just love it. Kids getting hurt. I have a kid. I love it. Kids getting hurt is one of my favorite Instagram, <laughs> Instagram things to follow. Oh my God. Yeah. Like those kids who are like oh. in their full snowsuit and, yeah. you know, they've never seen snow the first time. And they're like, ah, take two yeah. steps and face plant. Face right plant. In the big Absolutely. Oh a my cat. God. A cat takes kid down. Oh, <laughs> but like when, but like if a dog is like licking its paws too much, I'm like, this is, I can't, why would we even want to see something like that? <sighs> yeah. Oh, my God. yeah. I, I recently wrote a column for our local paper and, um, you know, uh, as of today's recording, uh, April 8th, I am opening a show here in Sheridan, a production of the musical first date. And, uh, for my column, I wrote, I'm like, just come enjoy this because these are two completely neurotic people on a first date going mm. th- like anything that is said is a trigger and, <laughs> yeah. and, and a, a downward spiral of thoughts happen afterward. And I said, so just come and watch these two people bumble through things as humanely as they possibly can. Yes. And it'll be so it, cathartic for you. It will be so cathartic for you because it's just- Because you're wow. not the one saying this stupid no. shit. Yeah. 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 It's like, God, I remember when I did that on my first date and I am so glad I'm not doing that right now, but my <laughs> God, it's funny to watch. So I, so I said, yeah, it's, it's pain that's happening to somebody else at that moment. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's you sharing a, a, a laugh with this long necked woman over a, a goofy kid falling in the mud. Uh, I, I equated it to- it's the groom's pants falling down on his wedding day and you're in the church. You know, it's, it's oh. the cold, the cold bucket of water being thrown over somebody's head. It, yes. it, it, those are the moments that my God, I can't get enough of that. Yes. But if it happens to me, yeah. just shoot, shoot me now. But you know, there's this other little nuanced layer, um, Aaron, I want to just see what you think about this because that one of, of the humor of someone else, either looking the fool or getting hurt is like, Ooh, we all mm, so tantalizing. So fantastic. <laughs> but I don't know what this one is, which is the laugh in church or at a funeral. Um, because you're, it, it's different. No one's necessarily the, the butt of that, Yeah. but there yeah. seems to be this sort of, it's in part laughter is itself an interloper. Mm-hmm. in this space it's it's a forbidden fruit we shouldn't be laughing right now and so the ver- very fact that we're finding something funny in this space multiplies the funny yeah yeah and makes it and then mm-hmm. the the irresistible I, we shut it down which means you can't and then watching each other fail at shutting down the laugh do you know what i mean i, I do I, there's I do. something so unique and so particularly deliciously human and fantastic about the giggle at a funeral um, it's the well, shared, it, and it's always a shared giggle, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to that quote from Michael Shirtliff earlier. Humor is not jokes. It's that attitude towards yeah. living, you know, yes. like, mm. I mean, mm. here we are in this moment, like everybody's gathered at a funeral because mm-hmm. they're sad that this person died and, and they don't want, they don't, they haven't dealt with that loss yet. They don't know how to deal with that loss. 
And so when that laughter starts, people are like, oh my God, thank God the world can be set aright again. I yeah. can, I can delight and I can find mm-hmm. joy. And mm-hmm. that's particularly in my opinion right now, what like all theater artists and all performing mm. artists should be yes. focusing on right now. Yes. I mean, yes, the world is heavy and there are some things we can talk about, but my God, when was the last time a comedic performance was nominated for like an Oscar? Oh, hun, that right? is so painful, isn't it? Right. And I think that the laughter too, for us right now, it is these lifelines dangling down in the darkness yep. that we just we're holding on with both hands and are like, give me my funny. And we, and mm-hmm. we should, because, um, it's really necessary, our laughter. I mean, what I talked about that, that not only is it so universal, it is the first thing you share as a human being. You laugh with your parents long yep. before you walk, long before you talk, long oh. before you're singing songs, you laugh yep. together with a, a parent. And I, I think that because it is that quick connection, um, we, we really need to treat it with, with the sanctity that it, that it deserves. Agreed, agreed. Okay. Here's my last quote, getting into right. the uh, topic for today. You haven't achieved anything in comedy unless your portraits can be seen to be living types. This is a quote from Jean-Baptiste Poquelin, mm. known to the world as Moliere. Moliere, interesting. Mm-hmm. Unless your portraits can be seen as living types. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the things you're putting on stage, the characters mm-hmm. you're creating, need to be seen as real people. Mm-hmm. And if you're not achieving that, then you're not achieving comedic effect. Interesting. You know what? That the first thing that came to mind is um, Kevin Hart. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Obviously, a leading comedian of our time, but especially his early stuff. And always, he is so good at doing impressions. And it isn't necessarily mm-hmm. about accurately doing impressions of people, but a lot of times, like for example, you know, he's when I talked about the high school that does the joke about the vice principal and the whole place dies. The only way that that joke can work in another high school that doesn't have that same vice principal is if you first establish who that individual is and why you're about to lampoon right. them. And mm-hmm. I feel like Kevin Hart does all of these great impressions of his cousins and his relatives, these people that you and I have no intimacy with, you and I have uh-huh. never met or seen before, but he tells us just those handful of things we need to know about them. Then he personifies them, makes them, as you say, a living portrait of mm-hmm. this really believable person so that he can tell whatever absurd story he wants to tell. And we're right there in the room right. with these people. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, that, uh, I, I think of like uh, Dana Carvey in yeah. the last several years when he's been talking about uh, like people go, God, you have so many impressions. You're so great at impressions. And he's like, it's not that I'm great at, at impressions. It's, it's that I'm great at finding like the little things that make them human. Mm. Um, uh, I think it was his... God, it was on some late night show and he did a Barack Obama impression. Here's like in his 60s, white man, yeah. Dana Carvey, yeah. nailing He looks so Barack much like o- Ellen DeGeneres these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I mean it, I get Ellen DeGeneres and Dana Carvey confused at first glance all the time. Now that's an impression for you. It's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so getting into this, I'm leading off with Moliere. Because we're going to be talking about something that happened to Moliere today. Okay. Okay. Now, born Jean-Baptiste Poquelin, and my French is terrible, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> C'est très bien. Yeah, uh, oui. Uh, Moliere possibly took his stage name to avoid his family receiving any negative criticism for his chosen lifestyle. From the Renaissance onward, actors were held in ill regard because of the absolutely vile things that they would have to do on stage, in character, that wasn't necessarily their person, is just what they did, which often went against common morality. But by Moliere's time, opinions had lacked somewhat. During the time that Moliere lived, 1622 to 1673, actors could not be given baptism, marriage rights, or even a Christian burial. But Louis XIII did declare in 1642, a year before he died, that as... As long as actors avoided being on stage purposefully for the point of being lewd, quote, we desire that their occupation, which is capable of providing an innocent diversion for our people from certain blameworthy activities, shall not be held to their discredit nor prejudice their reputation, end quote. Generous. That was très generous. Yeah. (laughs) Even though it kind of (laughs) did. I mean, people still were like, Mm, actor, actors, yeah. don't touch yeah. me. She's a muse. So, yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of 
Well, there were a lot of two-faced ideologies in 17th century France. Be like, can you believe it? They're wearing wigs and costumes and makeup. What do they think they're uh, doing? Uh, and they go up to them. Wigs, yeah, makeup, costumes. yeah, and they're they're all fopped out. Mm-hmm. Now, but for a comic playwright like Moliere, there was no better environment to make fun of than that of the Paris bourgeoisie of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. So here's kind of a longer quote too, but this is great. This was the era of, quote, conspicuous waste with the gentlemen and ladies of the court making a virtue of extravagance in dress, speech, and behavior with the salons bussing with artificial lovemaking and even more artificial speech. Jesuitism wielded such control over intellectual inquiry that it forced thinkers like Descartes into exile. But the nobility took no heed of this situation, while the nabobs of the middle class waxed fat with profits from corrupt practices and made a passion of the acquisitive instinct, end quote. Whew. That's the environment we're in right now. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> ooh, ooh. I'm yeah. wealthy as hell, and I'm fucking everything, but I'm very, very moral. Oh, yes. And and also the things that I enjoy and that I have exclusive privilege to mm-hmm. can't be given to the masses because they can't be trusted. There's only certain <laughs> ones of us that can have all of this and we are right, responsible right. and educated and they'll ruin it. Yeah. And I love how that quote says, like gives a little comment on the middle class too. They're just like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, well, business is business. If you want to, you know, uh, have a room upstairs in my place where you're taking a different girl every week, then that's fine. Just as long as you're dropping a penny in the tip jar on your way out. Right, right. You know? <laughs> well, it's always, I mean, that that hypocrisy has always been, I think, among the unforgivable things. That seems to be fairly universal, is we, we can accept just about anything except oh, yeah. for hypocrisy. Oh, don't go against that. No. Yeah. Yeah. So basically in this time, everything was really pretty and there was just a thick glob of slime just below a very thin veil of perfumed lace. Mm. Now, on top of that was also like an almost superficial sense of zealotry amplified by Jesuit belief of Catholic doctrine. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. I have a very good friend in Vienna who's a longtime best friend and always listener who is a seminary student he's a he's a graduate student in theology and ministry and stuff and so i wrote to him and i'm like uh in short what did you think of jesuits in the 17th century france <laughs> like some, yeah what do you got and he's like uh didn't do a lot of study on that. Uh, are you talking about? And then he just started listing like all kinds of things that they did at that time. And I'm like, oh, so you obviously do know what's going on. So what I will say is that just know that the Jesuits were pretty much able to permeate everything on an official level by adding their moral stamp of approval or disapproval. And their dominance was hard earned. I mean, once the Protestant Reformation happened, like there were so many different schools of thought within Catholic doctrine, like, well, how do we respond to this? How do we, how do we maintain superiority here? Right. If they were the mafia, if the church was the mafia, the 17th century French Jesuits would be the capos. Okay. (laughs) They got there with a lot by a trail of blood behind them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of metaphorical blood, I will say. Mm -hmm. They might've done some killings. I don't know, but they had earned their way there by getting rid of other guys. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is quite different than the Jesuits who exist today, who still do some missionary work and the like, but they did that back then too, but it was just a little bit more cutthroat. So anyway, Moliere was deeply steeped in the society from a young age, up close and personal as his father was named one of eight official upholsterers Oh. For King Louis, for King Louis the Fourteenth, oh, and he had a lot of love seats. That's a lot of love seats you got to keep clean. And who knows what they're doing on that upholstery? Mm. Mm. I I need a new hassock. We broke yes. this one. Yes, I shan't. I spilled some yogurt, <laughs> and so did Marjorie upon um. the frill. <laughs> I don't want to give a whole life story on Moliere, okay? But something of a resume is required. So when asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
upholstery or law, <laughs> he chose law. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he spent enough time in the court. He was just like, I'm done with this crap. I'm going to go yeah. out and do my own thing. But there is no record of him ever act uh, like actually practicing or completing the necessary exams to practice law. Hmm. In June 1643, Moliere joined an acting troupe and was soon running his own companies. <laughs> da, 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 da. So he just went, Dad, I'm going to go study law. And Dad's like, well, that's a noble profession, son. And I'm going to study it from the wings of a theater <laughs> where I'll be working. <laughs> and then not study anymore. Yeah. Now, through his early works, he started to realize that his future did not lie in tragedy or more serious works. His mind would better be applied to comedy and bringing to light some of the more ostentatious elements of the wealthier classes, which he did so well. Mm -hmm. Just so many zingers. And in something of an ironic twist, theater goers at the time loved this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. The lower income patrons enjoyed seeing their air quotes superiors mocked and exposed and the upper classes enjoyed being able to laugh at what was on stage in something of a demonstration that they were not the people on stage committing the foibles and thus a better quality of character than their on stage counterparts. <laughs> we would never. <laughs> we would never. Look at how he's chasing that young girl around and I'm going yes. to go home with my ward and yes. don't, don't look in the windows. <laughs> Yes, but do you know what I think that is, though? I think it's honestly the Real Housewives right now. Mm, mm -hmm, because, mm -hmm. because you've got your lower class and your middle class being like, look at these idiots. You know, they get their yeah. perfect breasts and they, they have all the money in the world um, and they still just like scream at each other and don't know who their friends are and are jealous of their husband's job, yep. right? Just like, yep. and, the, and I think you have your rich <laughs> gazillion dollar home you know, one percenters that are like, could be worse. You know, we could <laughs> yeah. be these assholes. Yeah. And everybody yeah. gets a catharsis, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, hand me the fentanyl lace coke, will you? Yeah. <laughs> while we judge, while we watch while another we episode oh. and judge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, about 15 years into his career, Moliere performed for King Louis XIV and the king's uh, brother, Philippe, the Duke of Orleans. The Duke loved the performance and the Duke would invite Moliere's troupe to perform in front of very, air quotes again, important audiences. Mm. So he had a sponsor, which was really ah, cool. Really important. Now, the Duke brought Moliere to one of his brother's many grand fêtes, his brother being the king, where there was all manner of entertainment. Moliere's troupe brought a play that mocked some of the decencies of proper society and the king ate it up with a spoon, yes. despite some initial skepticism. And over the next couple of decades, the king would sponsor Moliere by publicly endorsing his works and by providing an official place of business for Moliere's company on several occasions. This includes the Comédie Française, which still exists and runs shows today, which is so cool. Like that's one, uh, that's bucket list. I gotta uh, go see it. Bon chance, I gotta go, right? right? Absolutely. Now the king would also come to Moliere's defense quite often, when the playwright's plays would offend the delicate sensibilities of the bourgeoisie as they were often the subjects of his play. Uh-huh. They don't mean you, Babs. He's not no. talking about you. No, no. He might be, a but he didn't say It's it. a different Babs <laughs> with your hat and your dog that lives in your house. Different. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, but as referenced in the quote that began this episode, Moliere thought that that theater should be something of a mirror in which society viewed itself and not so much with an air of seriousness. They're like, look, you have to shave your legs and fart sometimes too. It's okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Come on. But rather he wanted everybody to look at life rather with an ability to laugh at that, which makes us innately wicked or flawed mm. by nature of us just simply being human. Mm -hmm. You know, we all mm -hmm. trip. We all fall down the stairs. We all, you know, like have our pants rip occasionally yeah. you know yeah. like you said like you said fart jokes are fart jokes are fart and, jokes and humans can't help but fart every now and then we gotta do it we have to do it if you're yes. not doing it then there's something wrong you're with gonna you. get hurt yeah oh, you okay. know do you i i don't have a, a i'm not usually a fangirl but jennifer lawrence tripped and fell on her way to get her oscar i don't even remember yes. what year it was yeah and I liked her. I still, I was, I thought she was great. I never had any like fuck Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> but in that moment when she tripped and fell, her face was delighted. 
Right. She did the thing that you do when you fucking fall in front of anybody, but then you <laughs> fall at the Oscars. I mean, she let la- her immediate joy and she picked up her dress and kind of looked around like, oh no, I fell at the Oscars, you know? Right. <laughs> and then she got her thing and it was just so beautiful and so vulnerable and so endearing. And I think one of the quotes you initially started off with, which is the beams of light, the silvery beams of light yes. from heaven shone on her in that moment because you just saw she sees life in a wonderful, beautiful way, her knee jerk and instantaneous reaction to something like that happening is, oh no, instead of (laughs) kill, kill me. I'm, I should die. I have to hide. I have to cry. Someone's to blame. Yeah. The, the other ugly reactions you can have. Right. Right. I would imagine there had been a few cocktails before that, but (laughs) Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, even though Moliere was not above bodily humor or body humor Hmm. he more often preferred to tell tales that exhibit holes in the moral compunction of otherwise upstanding people Mm -hmm. for example one of his first big hits was the school for wives which basically tells the story of an older man using his considerable power and wealth and standing to justify marriage to his much younger and lusty ward (laughs) yes (laughs) and he keeps her stupid he homeschools her and keeps her dumb (laughs) <laughs> just so she thinks you're the smartest thing ever yeah you're the best I'm, why would i ever leave you yeah so basically someone in the upper class behaving badly but trying his damnedest to justify it mm-hmm. you know and yeah. in the end the audience gets to laugh at itself yes <laughs> yes look at us up there yeah yeah and and you know there's that old man out there just stroking the thigh of his 15 year old you know girlfriend and he's 60 right. and going isn't that funny Now, as I indicated before, the audiences of French neoclassical theater were more often the wealthier members of society or members of court or usually both. But this doesn't mean that the plays didn't pass undamaged. I mean, quite often the plays were met with lots of criticism as some stuffy folks tried to justify their indignation rather than accepting some fun social critique. Hmm. Okay. And on kind of a funny note, Once the School for Wives started getting a lot of bad critique, Moliere then wrote a play called The Critique of the School for Wives, in Ah. which he mocked the people who had first tried to originally censure the play. Oh, no. (laughs) And both plays went on to great success, despite significant criticism. Oh, très bien, Moliere. Well done. Right? Right? Like, I'm going to clutch my pearls about this school for wives. Oh, this is a pearl clutching (laughs) play about pearl clutches. Exactly. So it kind of goes without saying that if Moliere didn't have the approval of King Louis, he may not have met with the success he did because just about everybody was trying to make themselves look better in Louis's eyes. And so if they came to him and went, I hate this play, and he goes, well, I love this play. They go, me too. (laughs) But I would also suggest that this means it wasn't just the wealthy and offended who were attending. The plays kept selling tickets and had long runs. So even in the face of criticism, there was a pretty significant draw. But then again, I mean, that's kind of the allure sometimes. Like um, I just finished the miniseries on Hulu, Pam and Tommy. Did you watch that? No, I auditioned oh for it though. Are I you was, kidding me? I, no, I re- I was so excited. Oh. Um, I auditioned for it and I thought, are they fucking serious? But you know, we've also had that like uh what was the OJ Simpson? There have been some like yes. really cool yeah. kind of from the 90s, uh, you know, early aughts. Yeah, there was a, very the, cool the impeachment one where the girl was yeah. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Right. So they they've been doing a great job, and I was really stoked about it. And I saw a few of the images are so I mean, visually, it feels like I'm watching MTV in 1995. Like it looks exactly like the whatever. So I, and I've heard very good things, but no, I haven't seen any of it yet myself. It was really incredible, but I just have to suggest that like a scandal obviously will create more buzz. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I loved that show for the treatment of how, you know, we viewed Tommy in that tape and how we viewed Pamela in that tape and mm. how the nineties went, Tommy, you fuck Pamela Anderson. Yeah. And they went, Pamela Anderson, you're a slut. Right. Right. And you're like, no, it was their honeymoon sex tape. Yeah. 
they, you know, they were having sex together. They were uh-huh. both doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it was such a, it was such a like first in terms of how do we as individuals exist in a quote unquote real life. Yeah. And then a quote unquote virtual social media life. Right. And th- obviously there wasn't the social media we have now. I mean, it was still a tape, right? You had to get that yeah. tape, but then you yeah. had to find the tape. Like, but like, that idea, because I think sometimes we get like, oh, they're making all this money and then they can have this identity that exists on social media where everyone saw them fall down or everyone saw them have sex or everyone saw them throw a cup of coffee in somebody's face or whatever it is that makes you yeah, yeah. the thing. And that that individual who's featured can live a life separate from that. And I think that increasingly what we're learning is mm-hmm. your social media life is your life. Yeah. Whether you like yeah. it or not, and whether you mm-hmm. choose for it to be or not, it is what people know about you. It is what people think about you. And overwhelmingly, it is what you think about yourself. Regardless of my conspiracy theories towards this, uh, I don't think he's ever going to listen to this, but Kanye West, uh, yes. we're, we're tired of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your girl dumped you and she's with a, a guy who's, who's dated every babe. So just live with it. You know, you're still Kanye yeah. West and you still have this empire mm-hmm. you've built knock it off right (laughs) so going back to Moliere all of this criticism and all of the scandal surrounding his plays none of that deterred him he seemed to know that this would be the reaction and he kept writing in the same way in Mm. fact it almost seemed to make him work harder to elicit those responses from people now By 1664, Moliere had been in the theater business for over 20 years. His approval from the king remained steadfast. So when his troupe was booked to perform at one of the king's themed festivals known as the Pleasures of the Enchanted Isles, (laughs) Moliere presented what came to be known as his most famous and also most scandalous work, Mm -hmm. Tartuffe or the Imposter. It's so great. Oh, it's so great. For my listeners who don't know it, let me break down the synopsis. We begin in the house of a wealthy Parisian man named Orgone, who has recently taken a boarder, the purportedly devout clergyman named Tartuffe. The story starts with Orgone's mother reprimanding everyone in the house for disapproving of Tartuffe's stay with Orgone. Well, the reason they object is that they don't believe that Tartuffe is as straight-laced as he claims to be. They doubt his street cred for a number of reasons, including often mixing up stories of the Bible, offering preposterous lessons that seem to contradict traditional virtue, and mainly, they see him as just getting a free ride off of the generosity of Orgone. But worst of all, they believe that Tartuffe is explicitly and directly taking advantage of Orgone's spirituality. Mm -hmm. Soon, Orgone shows up, and basically says the same thing that his mother has said. No one is to speak ill of Tartuffe. In fact, he plans to take even more stake in his relationship with Tartuffe. He announces that he's going to have his house merged with Tartuffe's by having Tartuffe marry his daughter, Marianne, even though she already has a suitable suitor. Now, Tartuffe is even able to convince Orgone to disown his son, which puts him in line to inherit Orgone's estate once he's married to Orgone's daughter. Distraught, Orgone's disowned son, Damis, manages to hide in order to observe Tartuffe making romantic passes at Orgone's wife, Elmir. But Elmir is not at all interested in Tartuffe's advances, and Tartuffe leaves, promising that she will be his someday. (laughs) Damis reveals himself and begins to conspire with Elmir to unmask the deviousness of Tartuffe. They manage to convince Orgone to hide under a table with a big tablecloth on it so that he won't be seen. So that when Tartuffe returns, he can hear Tartuffe's intentions for himself. And this pretty much happens. Tartuffe returns, makes more advances at Elmir, and Orgone hears the whole thing. He reveals himself to the imposter and sends out for some of the king's men to come arrest Tartuffe and imprison him. But Tartuffe has pulled another fast one. While he's been in Orgone's house, he has been able to falsify some documents and have them made official so that he is now in control of Orgone's assets anyway. Then he banishes Orgone from his own home. But just in the nick of time, the king's men arrive and state that the king has heard of this Tartuffe, Mm. doesn't like his character at all based on hearsay alone. The king has ordered his men to come remove Tartuffe from the home. That's just what they do. And everything is set aright again with Mm. Damis's heritage restored and Argonne's daughter, Marianne, set to marry her suitor. Happy ending. 
très bien. Ah, oui, oui. Yeah. It is. It's the, it was so, I remember when we studied Tartuffe uh, in college and it was so funny because it was that like, it was still in Moliere's best interest. Yeah. To cast the king favorably. Yes. And yes. that's the guy, like, like you can piss off all of these wig wearing sons of bitches all day. You can lampoon them. You can name them. As long as the king still looks good. Shakespeare did the same thing with the queen yep. that yep. he would, he would skewer everybody, but the queen would walk in and she, she could solve it all. She could make whatever. And she was above it all. She was above this. Yeah. She knew that these assholes were taking advantage of their positions. And she was somehow <laughs> super like omniscient about it all, you know? clever mm -hmm. so remember that i said the play was somewhat scandalous <laughs> <laughs> i do the version of the play we know today is not the version that was performed during the pleasures of the enchanted isles really because that version was immediately banned upon conclusion of the performance <gasps> no printed copies are in existence because upon banishment of the play all copies were possessed and destroyed. <gasps> <laughs> what did Tartuffe do? What some Ooh. records suggest is that the Enchanted Isles version, and this is just what I'm calling it, yeah. it was only three acts long, which traditionally at that time plays were five acts long. Some suggest that this would have the play ending with Orgone banishing his son from his home. But that doesn't seem too likely. Like that, yeah. the, you know, ha, 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 you're out of here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, da, 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 da. It could also be that the performance was stopped because there was too much commotion from the crowd to stop the performance. <laughs> this is too much. Now, King Louis saw it and apparently loved the show. But upon pressure from the Jesuits in the crowd that night, uh... or due to pressure from church leaders in Paris, he had declared that the play could no longer be performed for public audience. Duh. <sighs> He's just like, hey, it's just for the greater good, dog. Like, I still love I, you. I got you, but yeah. yeah. I'll always, I'll play it in my brain. Yeah, yeah. I'll think of you sweetly. Oh. In fact, soon after, the Archbishop of Paris declared that anyone who watched or even read the play would be excommunicated. You go to hell, girl? <laughs> you go to hell for reading that play. Jeez. There are some suggestions that he thought he was being personally lampooned by the character of Tartuffe, but based on my studies, he's the only one who thought that. <laughs> uh, so now without needing to go too deep into explanation, the church was pretty offended by the idea of that a man of the cloth could be seen as being so deceptive. Mm. That was their major beef. Sure. They're like, there's no way there's it's no impossible. way sure. you can say that an old man might want to marry his 15 year old ward, but you will never say that a man of the cloth would use his position to dupe people. Impossible. <laughs> and we're like, uh, let's go ahead and okay. fast forward 300 years. I'm going to introduce you to this man named uh, Jim Tammy Faye Baker. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> right. Now, it should also be noted that Moliere's comedies rarely, if ever, offer a solution to the character flaws seen in his plays. If anything, he suggests that character uh, traits are absolute. So here's another kind of longer quote that from my research. Moliere is a systematic observer of human folly, but he does not suggest a cure. On the contrary, he shows us that character flaws cannot be remedied. He paints a bleak picture of a world of eccentrics rigidly set in their ways. The normal seeming characters around them and dependent upon them have to duck and weave and try to get on with their lives. Indeed, Moliere has, dif has difficulty bringing his plays to a close. Logically, they should never end happily, so long as the eccentric protagonist is alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were saying it earlier, like, we do see this in Tartuffe, the offstage character of King Louis sits everything right again. I mean, like you were saying, that was a nudge to keep his political credit. Right, right. You also got to consider that at the end of the play, it's not Orgone who takes care of everything. He no. tries to, he sends out for the King's men and then Tartuffe pulls another zinger because, well, I mean, he's backed up against the wall. He's got fight or flight, so he's going right. to fight and right. he's got another, uh, another ace up his sleeve. So we can assume that Orgone will probably just continue being gullible and defensive. Right. <laughs> right. right. So nonetheless, the Enchanted Isles version of the play was banned, never to be seen again. Moliere did perform it again, though, for private parties. Of course he did. And strangely enough, no one seems to have been excommunicated for it. 
So it's kind of like, we held this party. Mm -hmm. We saw this play. Mm -hmm. And if anybody asks, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> we, saw, we saw Tar, 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 Tar. That was the name of the play. And it was, it was, it was very about, good. It was just about how great God is. And we all loved and it. And man-eating fish yeah. sticks. Um, but you know, I wonder, I feel like too, you always have to look at like the way that we or the general population are looking at con artists or mm. or or people who are living below board you know what i mean and we yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. cast them every once in a while we come around this cycle of the wheel where we cast them as heroes i mean i feel like the wolf of wall street is like the tartuffe of oh man the 2020s yeah. in the sense that it's like look at this asshole scheming and stealing and lying and not very good at investment and not telling the truth and not like this great entrepreneur just a powerful personality who has you know, Tartuffe had the benefit of he's wearing a suit and a tie and is a white guy and works on Wall Street. So he's sort of yep. endowed with all of this stuff. And at the end, he goes to federal prison. I mean, it's a true story about a guy who gets busted and goes to federal prison. But, you know, when you see that character, Kyle Chandler, you know, mm. who's the hero, he's the governor, he's the good guy. He's, he doesn't mm -hmm. lie. He doesn't steal. He does. He tells the <laughs> truth. He's in the pursuit of truth. And you see him sitting in this sad ass seat on the subway home after winning. Right, right. You know, and so you, uh, have to, it, it felt to me like kind of at the end of Tartuffe, to your point, you kind of go, well, who, who's the hero of this story? Yeah, Who am I right. supposed to celebrate? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, he's in federal prison now, but he yeah. did a lot did a of lot. crazy right. hedonistic shit. Yeah. And if we, and if we, you know, we're staging Tartuffe today, would we, would we kind of give a nod as like, that guy knows how to con the system. Yeah. Right. Oh, bro. You beat the man. Yeah. yeah you almost had an estate. Wow. <laughs> yeah i mean going back to the the pam and tommy thing like yeah. pam you whore but tommy you fuck pam Stood. yeah yeah however plucky old moliere oh tried to have a version reproduced for public audience again three years later in 1667 this one he called just the imposter and he changed the character's name from tartuffe to panulf <laughs> But basically kept everything else the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. uh, what do you want? I mean, it's a change as you ask for. Result again, immediate banishment. One performance Damn. in the toilet. Damn. And this time it had even further implications towards legal action. Apparently parliament got involved and declared version 2.0 illegal oh. for public consumption. Not just banned from the king. Like, hey, you shouldn't do this. Yeah. It, now it's like uh, there are some serious legal actions that could, mm. I, I didn't find out like what the action was but yeah parliament is like no no, no. shut it down and again this resulted in version 2.0 being performed only for private parties yeah yeah be like what is it we're not supposed to see what is it is it too awesome yeah. is that why we're not yeah. supposed to see it? it's yeah. too awesome it's too great can, can, can we send me the password yeah um, mm -hmm. yeah so finally, in 1669, two years later, after most of the big people who complained about it in 1664 had fallen out of favor, Moliere wrote a third version. And this is the version of the play that we still have in existence today. Mm, and you, it, and we don't know what they changed. We had no idea what they changed. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So it still had the same themes, the same plot, same characters, but we'll never know just how different it was than its two predecessors. Yeah. So the two bannings of Tartuffe, three versions of it. Here are some final thoughts that we can chew on for this. Yes, obviously the, the politically influenced members of the church were going to be incensed. <laughs> I mean, no matter what, you're presenting a character that is morally corrupt and he has a position in the church or he's, mm -hmm. he claims to. We never, I don't think we ever really find out if Tartuffe is actually ordained or not. He just claims mm -hmm. to be. He's a great con artist. But the funny thing about this was it was not the character of Tartuffe that Moliere was really focused on in this play. Mm -hmm. It's important to note that Moliere often acted in his own productions, usually in the lead role. So that's the one he thought that the audience should be paying attention to. Remember, he didn't want to offer solutions, but rather how to show how difficult some people can be mm. and how we have to work around them. You know, it's like that asshole at the office who always has to be like, I think we need to talk about parking for the next quarter because it's unfair. You're like, shut the fuck up. I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah. And that guy's never going to be like, does that make me an asshole? I don't know. No. So 
it's almost like he didn't think theater was a tool to change people, but rather to work towards accepting difficult circumstances of life mm-hmm. and difficult people. Therefore, by playing these parts himself, he was telling the audience to focus on what he was doing for further introspection later. And so in Tartuffe, he played Orgone. Interesting. I was like, does he play the brother? Does he play the the son? He played the guy getting duped. Interesting. Yeah. He thought it was more important to show how gullible and impressionable an otherwise stately nobleman can be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What his ultimate intent was this, it's kind of unclear. Uh, However, it can't be said that he's totally innocent of trying to denounce the church. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because if his characters have traits, it cannot be changed. Tartuffe was going to be like this anyway. And he mm-hmm. he absolutely slammed people for being totally deceitful with their positions. Yeah, But more than anything, he was trying to exhibit how the wealthy can get themselves into ways of thinking and handling themselves that are ultimately detrimental. I mean, think about it. Orgone allowed himself to be duped. Mm-hmm. And again, he didn't resolve the action. The king did. Nonetheless, for the rest of his career... Moliere would never again write anything so inflammatory as Tartuffe. Damn. Today, in the French language, the word Tartuffe is slang for someone with false intentions. It's part of the vernacular. Censor that. And that's the story of the banning of Tartuffe. Oh, that is a good girl. I That is some health. And that's something. There. And that's yeah. something like yeah, you you effed that H big time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that was that was one of those things we were talking about. Like you're going through your your history in theater as as your part of your studies, and they go, uh, yeah. And Tartuffe is this play. Here's the synopsis. Oh, and it got banned a couple times. So we got the uh-huh. the one that didn't get banned. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, tell me about that because mm-hmm. you know it's pretty. I don't know that it's rare anymore. It might be rare. Even even today, we have, you know, like, God, that that great graphic novel Mouse was banned by mm, some mm-hmm. by some ridiculous school district because uh, uh, Holocaust denial. I don't know. I, don't I, I have uh, like, are, are you just flat out admitting you're neo-Nazis? I don't know. But, you know, that is that, that seems to be often where censorship slides in to places where people would otherwise fight it is always when they use kids people oh the kids and i think that when you start to stand between you know the the harsh realities of the world the ugly truths of the world and our innocent children there are those who are like i will stand between these things in my child forever <laughs> i will never let anything ever get to them and then there's like well i'd like i know they're going to learn about Oh, fuck the Holocaust and all of these awful things that I have to warn them about. But, you know, I'd like to give it to them nice and slow, ease them in. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that, none yeah. of that explains why you would ban a book no. that is simply introducing a dark subject to a well, child's yeah. mind. And I, <laughs> uh, kind of mistakenly, I, I have a copy of the book. I showed it to my uh, 14-year-old son sometime last year. I'm like, this is a really, he's he's way into like, world war ii like planes and technology mm-hmm. and stuff like that he loves that kind of stuff he has a couple yeah, of video games he plays like that yeah fascinating stuff um but i'm like there's there's another side to this it isn't just like cool warships and planes and guns it's like th- there was some real ugly stuff that happened with this okay, um yeah. you know i've shown him saving private ryan and the woman who walks beside me andra says now you got to show him schindler's list uh, and I went oh shit Mm. yeah because yeah, yeah uh we haven't done that yet but i did show it to him and he hasn't read it mm. all right but but son this is if you could take an easy pill for mm. the holocaust and studying it do it with the jews are mice and the nazis are mm. cats and... you know what else is a great movie <laughs> is uh, life is beautiful I think oh, is, yeah. a, is a great way to introduce a, an adolescent to some of the some of the stuff because it, it really is was it Roberto Benini was that yeah. the guy yeah. he just you know the darkness and the human spirit living within the darkness is just so yeah. beautiful I, 
Um, in every one of my intros, I, I credit Tom Empey, who was my major mentor in college, who, uh, rest in peace, Tom. Uh, he and I would go to movies often and we went to see that. <laughs> and the next day I'm like, oh man, I'm still thinking about it. He goes, I hated it. And I went, why? He goes, I think it's total bullshit that a kid could be completely duped into not seeing a war happening around him. <laughs> And I'm like, all right, good point. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I mean, it's 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 impressive to me. I, I think we talked about it in my uh, episodes on the trials of Oscar Wilde, uh, just how much society will just throw itself on that sword of of perceived appropriateness mm. when. Um, so actually here I'll, I'll 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 state it this way because this is really actually kind of funny um if you go back and listen to my episode 25 on uh sir anthony sure and his uh version of uh richard the third which walked on crutches mm. he uh when he got the part uh he was in a production of tartuffe when he was mm. playing the title character and i guess in the play there's a scene where he has his pants down and you can just see his tight little ass and then they uh it was so popular they're like hey the bbc wants to do a televised version so we're gonna direct that and there's this great chapter in his autobiography of that time (laughs) he's like the concept of applying stage makeup to my ass for camera <laughs> daunting. <laughs> They're like, uh, that's not the right shade. Let's clean it off yeah. and try again. Uh, <laughs> just having to sit there yeah. hunched over, leaning okay. on a stool, like, like yep, we need, just... we need to bring in like twenty percent more, twenty percent less, twenty percent more, twenty yeah, uh, percent. Uh, let, yeah. Let's hit some powder. Let's hit some yeah. powder. And <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it was going for national television, no. state-sponsored television. There's my ass. And that blows my mind. Like, you know, it's it's only been within the last 15, 20 years where we're finally able to say shit on television. After you know, dog, yeah. And, yeah. 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 And it like it blows my it just blows my mind. You know what happened when we started being able to say shit on television? The whole infrastructure of the uh, of the world broke down on oh, a moral yeah. level. Actually, sure. none of that happened. So no, no, all the all the traffic lights stopped working. People just started guzzling gasoline. Nobody knew what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, Y2K just happened like ten years late. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there we go. Some absurd censorship. Oh, it's fascinating. That, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and now we have a play that we don't know what that we really don't know people. But we probably need to add more phallus to it to make it authentic. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Don, there we go. Any final thoughts on that? Um, no, just that I definitely will buy tickets to the next production of Tartuffe that I see. Absolutely. Uh, because, damn. All right, my friends and listeners, thank you so much. Don, thank you for appearing on the show. If you haven't subscribed or followed already, go check out Hilf, H-I-L-F, History I'd Like to Fuck. Comes out every two weeks, on uh, usually on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And for this episode of Euripides Humanities, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater signing off. We'll see you again in another two weeks. I will see you at intermission.